Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 1.5, The Life and Times of Pender, part 1. Before I begin, I've had lots of comments this time round, which is seriously good news. Unfortunately, it does mean that I have more corrections to make than flies on a pile of poo. So sit back and listen to me grovel. My own flesh and blood, my own brother, was first quick as a flash, like a rat up a drain. Now I said the Thames went east to west. I give you two choices. Number one, believe me, when I say that the Anglo-Saxons built a huge drain and pumping system and pushed the water up the Thames to Gloucester because they liked the idea of the water flowing uphill. Or, believe my brother when he says that the Thames actually runs west to east and that I'm a dipstick. I'll leave that one with you. Then, I messed up again. I spoke of the old kingdoms of Northumbria, Dara and Bernicia. I got messages from both Bob and Liz. Apparently, I got them the wrong way round. Bernicia is the one in the far northeast of England. Dara is nestled below between Bernicia and the Humber. Curses. Bob retired at this point, but Liz was just hitting her stride. Apparently, it's only the Bernicians who claim descent from Ida. The Darans look to Ayla. Double drat. Moving up a gear, Liz tells me that the idea of the heptarchy is rejected by modern historians, and I accept that point. Anglo-Saxon England is a patchwork. The heptarchy oversimplifies. But sorry, I'm sticking with that one, because it's broadly true and a helpful simplification. But then I was stunned when Liz informed me that the term Brett Walder is seriously questioned, as a back invention by a chronicler called Henry of Huntingdon in the 12th century. Bede doesn't use the term. He just uses the term imperium, 
which is absolutely right, I accept. Well, you could have blown me over, though I have to say, the term Brett Walder, I think, is used in some 10th century charters, but hey. And finally, the tribal hydage. Liz points out it's a very obscure document, so I could be right, but I could be wrong. And then Cameron asked a really interesting question. London looks to be in the middle of a number of kingdoms. Was it, even at this early stage, a pivotal centre? Cameron, the short answer is I don't know, but I suspect that the answer in the 6th and 7th centuries was no. London, which grew up outside the Roman and largely deserted London Burg early in the 7th century, but it would have been the 8th century before it became very significant, I'd have thought. Could be wrong, though. Either way, everyone, join me in telling Liz she needs to come and do a guest episode for me. Anyway, that's enough of me eating humble pie. On with the story. Somewhere around the year 600 or just after, a son was born to an important man called Puba in the nascent kingdom of Mercia. In his great hall, Puba's bard sang of him as a leader of the Ikelingas, the people of Ikel, the mythical founder of the kingdom of Mercia, descended from one-eyed Woden the All-Father. Puba called their son Penda and hoped for great things from him. The man who actually claimed to be king of Mercia at the time was called Churl, but that didn't mean Puba's son couldn't become king. He was part of the royal family, an atheling. The Angle and the Saxon tradition was that any member of the royal family could become king. The idea that it was automatically the eldest son seemed a daft idea. These were dangerous times, and dangerous times called for strong leaders. As long as each king could claim descent from Ekel and could prove himself in front of the Witten, the wise men of the community, then that was enough. And anyway, in the mosaic of communities and tribes, there were many kings leading small communities. So, if not king of all Mercia, why could Penda not be a sub-king of the, the Thomasiton or the Magansiter? The world into which Penda was born was a political jigsaw puzzle of large and small communities, British, Angle, Saxon, Jute. Politically, it was inherently unstable, with tribal loyalties conflicting with political needs and arrangements, old wounds and resentments never fully healed. There's a story that Bede wrote about from later in the 7th century, when the relics of a saint, St Oswald, were transferred to a monastery in Mercia. Now, it just so happened that St Oswald had been also a king, king of the Northumbrians, with whom the Mercians were often at war. Bede wrote that the monks were furious, quote, because he belonged to another kingdom and had once conquered them, they pursued him even when dead with their former hatred. This was a world in which big kingdoms gobbled up little ones, one where a loser's resentful, humiliated retainers were patronisingly allowed into the winners' halls and community, where the daughters of victorious kings found themselves sleeping in the beds of old antagonists to try and smooth the pain of defeat. It was hard in the 7th century to put aside ancient and current rivalries and slights, and in the maelstrom the smaller kingdoms and communities needed to be very nimble to survive or look for a protector. Mercia sat in the middle, squished between many Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Immediately to the east were the Middle Angles, to the north, the powerful Northumbrians, to the south, the Juissa, or the West Saxons. And to the west were the foreigners, the Welsh, and in particular the powerful kingdom of Powys. 
the perspective of many centuries might make us think that their relationship with the Welsh kingdoms was qualitatively different to that with the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, but in fact that probably wasn't true. It is indeed possible that Penda was a British name, in fact, and that Powys was just another power to be managed and cajoled and bullied as the occasion demanded. In fact, there was a leader of sorts for all Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, a man whose vague imperium or overlordship was theoretically accepted. His name at the time was Ethelbert. He had become Brett Walder, if I rebelliously continue to use that term, after Chorlin had been deposed as king of the West Saxons. Ethelbert was king of Kent. In fact, he was not only the king of Kent, Kent was split into two halves, west and east, and had a sub-king that ruled with Ethelbert, but everyone knew who was boss. Kent at the time felt a tad more sophisticated than the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. It had close links to the continent, to Francia. In fact, Ethelbert's wife, Bertha, was the daughter of a Frankish king. Its clothes and fashions owed much to the Franks, and as much as they did, their dutish passed. These links had made Kent rich and strong. To the north of Kent, the East Saxon kings actually paid Athelbert tribute. Now, it so happens that Bertha was a Christian, and part of the marriage deal was that she bring a Frankish bishop with her to Athelbert's pagan court. Something about that impressed Athelbert, and he'd written to the Bishop of Rome, asking him to send learned men to him to bring the message of Christ. And so in 597, a prior of a monastery in Rome, Augustine, had arrived with 40 to 50 learned men and converted Athelbert to the religion of Rome within a year of their arrival. Actually, it's interesting, but not inevitable, that Athelbert went to Rome. As it happens, outside Britain itself, there were plenty of people just itching to get across and do the same thing and evangelise. The Celtic Church in Ireland, for example, and the Frankish Church, not just Augustine and his Romans. But if Athelbert had gone to the Franks or the Irish for help, well, it would have been politically deeply, deeply uncomfortable. This is the thing about being converted by a political rival or a peer. It had the uncomfortable feeling of subservience that no king readily accepts. For Athelbert, Rome was safely far away. Augustine and his entourage brought another gift with them in addition to God, the gift of writing. To repeat again, to this point, Anglo-Saxon England had been almost completely illiterate. Athelbert wasn't a king for nothing, he had a brain on him, the lad. He could see the advantages of being able to write stuff down, and you can bet Augustine made the advantages clear. The church had a long and honourable history, or dishonourable history, of using the power of writing to their own advantage and they had no intention of stopping now. Athelbert used this new gift, first of all, to create the first piece of written Old English, a law code. It's an exciting thought. The rules of society, which up to now had simply been custom and practice, available for everyone to see. Or at least available if you had a priest somewhere nearby, of course, otherwise it would be utterly useless and just so much toilet paper. So, note to self, spread Christianity through Kent, so the folks can read my rules and regulations and we can all make sure we have properly categorised bananas. The law codes have a delightfully clear evidence at the start of them of the church's involvement. 
because right from the off they lay down blood-curdling penalties for messing with the property of the church. Now there's a thing. The big thing about Athelbert's dooms, since law is actually a later Norse word, is to control all those blood feuds. As far as Athelbert was concerned, the old tribal days where every man was equal, society was driven by kinship, and the way to sort out differences was by blood feud. Those days were chaos, and those days needed to be gone. What he wanted was for the king's peace to hold sway. And so the laws lay down a complex structure of ware guilds, payments to be made instead of blood feud, dependent on your importance and position in society. And in the presence of the king, any transgressions were to have their penalty doubled. The king's peace was to be absolute. The codes also carefully covered women's rights in marriage and in the event of widowhood, but we'll talk more about English law when we get to the 8th century. Despite the arrival of Augustine, the world Penda lives in at the start of the 7th century was predominantly pagan. We tend to assume that it's completely pagan, but actually that's not necessarily the case. For Eastern England, actually, it's in all likelihood probably true that when Augustine arrived, pretty much nobody would have had a clue about Christianity. But in Western Britain, Wales, Cornwall, Devon, the Christian religion was up and running with a pretty robust organisation and monasteries. In Western England, it might also have had a reasonable level of survival from Roman days. But our lad Athelbert could see the advantages of the religion. Anglo-Saxon kings were becoming more and more aware of the Roman glories that had gone before them, and like most rulers on the continent, they were keen to copy and emulate their habits so that some of that patina would rub off on them. Over the Channel, the Frankish kings were Christian, so once again, conversion would bring kudos to the Kentish dynasty. And then there was that control thing. A king had a role in the church in making appointments and distributing patronage. That gave him another source of power, but most excitingly, think of all those priests talking to their flocks every week, offering up prayers for the king, forming an unrivaled communication channel. I mean, really exceptional. Then there was a more nebulous thing. When it came to reinforcing your status vis-à-vis sub-kings or client-kings, having your sub-king baptised with you acting as godfather really made the point about who was boss here. So whether or not Athelbert saw the light in a pure religious sense, he went for it big time. In 604, he established another diocese at Rochester in addition to Augustine's at Canterbury. In 616, he called in his client king of the East Saxons and persuaded him to convert with all their people and talked them into supporting the building of a new church in the old deserted ruins of Roman Londonburg. It was to be called St Paul's. A bishop of London was installed in the new church and everything looked both hunky and indeed dory. Next, he did the same with another client king, Raidwald of East Anglia who likewise agreed with his boss that becoming a Christian was a terribly good idea. So it looked as though Christianity was off to a flyer, and now it was just a matter of time. Well, Athelbert's conversion was indeed critical, but there was a long, long way to go. Christianity at the time was slightly odd in its desire to rub out every other creed, and paganism was much more forgiving in having a pantheon of gods. 
So Raidwald went home full of enthusiasm and simply added the Christian god to his collection of gods in his shrine. Well, you can imagine poor old Bede laying eggs as he wrote about that one. There's a similar problem in the land of the East Saxons. Fair enough, converting the boss is indeed the very best way to convert the whole population. Iwius regio, Iwius religio in Latin. But you've still got to get out and do the legwork and educate the lot. And that was quite a job. And it would take a good deal of time before the pagan population understood what was expected of them, and indeed the pagan religious leadership. When the converted East Saxon king died in 616, his sons hadn't converted. But, like good pagans, they were happy for things to continue, and so they went to their new Bishop of London and told him he could keep going, just so long as the supply of magical bread kept coming. Well, you can imagine the horrified jowl wobbling that went on from the good bishop as he explained, you couldn't just rock up for some magic bread, you know. It was a matter of adherence to all the rules and beliefs and all of that. And before you could say Agnes Day, the good bishop had been slung out on his ear and the East Saxons were officially pagan once more. It would be another 40 years before a bishop could return and take up his post in London. In the same year, 616, Ethelbert of Kent died and the conversion was stalled. It's likely that news about these goings-on would have reached Puba's Hall, though we know nothing at all, of course, about Pender's upbringing or early life. We are told by Bede that Pender had 11 brothers. Think of that. And it's likely there was one sister. We have to hope, for her sake, that she was not the only daughter, but although we don't know her name, we know that she would marry a West Saxon prince, only to be later rejected, as the politics of Mercia and Wessex went sour. We think we know the name of two of the brothers. One, Iowa, might be a joint ruler with Pender. Another, Churl, may well be a successor of Puba on the Mercian throne. We do know a little about life of a lord's household, and indeed a royal court. The first thing is that it's likely that Puba and his household would have been constantly on the move, travelling from place to place to keep an eye on the royal estates, connect with other notable lords, collect tribute, that sort of thing. And we know that embedded in Athelbert's dooms was the right for the king to be fed and watered by his followers. But none of his great men could afford to do that for very long, so the king and his followers just kept going. When they were in residence, there would have been a great bustle going on. The estate centre they were staying at, whether as guests or at a royal ville, would teem with people, guests and estate workers, local churls coming in to render tribute. And although the Lord's wife might sleep in a bed in her own room, many of the household would travel with tents. The sons of great men like Pender were raised with the help of nursemaids. A 7th century holy man we'll hear more about, Cuthbert, described his early life running with his mates in gangs. And an 8th century writer describes digging foxes out of their holes and hunting hares. By late adolescence, they would be racing horses and taking part in the feasting in the Great Hall, maybe taking part in the drinking and storytelling that passed away the evening hours. There were strict rules against drawing weapons at such events, and you can imagine why. I don't want to sully the good name of any Angle warriors, but I'd like to bet that one horn too many wouldn't be that uncommon. I could be wrong. Hold up. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Feasts could be elaborate, especially in the autumn, when there was food to be eaten that could not be preserved. Guests made sure they had the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of their Sunday best, kept by just for such special occasions. And although we think of the Anglo-Saxon world as a small one, we know that exotic goods could make their way across the world to be on display there. The debris of archaeology has turned up Carthaginian tableware, turquoise blue vessels from the eastern Mediterranean, pottery from the Rhineland. The garnet, so beloved of Anglo-Saxon jewellers, came all the way from India. Bede, famously when he died, handed on prized possessions of pepper. It's also entirely likely and indeed probable that Penda would have met other noble families from other nations. As we've said, early Anglo-Saxon England was inherently stable, with all its tiny warring communities. And so exiles living in noble households were very common. And marriage between the noble families was of course a traditional strategy to forge and maintain relationships between kin and politics. So, the Northumbrian king Oswald spent time in exile amongst the Irish. His brother Edwin with the Picts in the far north of Scotland. We're told that the followers of King Oswin came from many kingdoms, and the halls described in the poem Beowulf were similar. Athelbert in Kent had an entourage of Franks that came with his wife, and when his daughter married the Northumbrian king, she tipped up at her new home with a bunch of Kentish ladies and an Italian bishop. So the household in which Pender spent his youth would have been a reasonably polyglot place and Penda was to prove very adept at using the contacts he made and in extending them. Christian and pagan, Anglo-Saxon and Celtic, these were barriers that made little difference to Penda when he hit his political career. After Athelbert's death in 616, the Anglo-Saxon Imperium was taken up by his former client Raidwald, King of the East Anglians, and our probable Sutton Hooman. In a sense, it's a little surprising that the East Anglians held the post of Bretwalder once only, given the size, fertility and coherence of the kingdom, but they would be continually overshadowed, politically at least, by the other kingdoms. We know little of Raidwald, but we do know of an incident that would have a profound impact on the life of our hero Pender. Around 597, the king of Dyra died. His son, Edwin, was too young to be considered as king of Dyra, and so Ethelfrith, the king of Bernicia, instead was chosen as king of all Northumbria, both Bernicia and Dyra. Ethelfrith's first wife, incidentally, was Beba, the woman after whom Bebenberg is supposed to have been named, now known as Bambara. Now, Ethelfrith was a tidy sort of man, and having all these royal heirs lying around the great hall felt messy and so Edwin ran for his life before he was tidied to death. He became a traveller, to the Welsh court at Gwyneth, then to the court of King Churl of Mercia. 
In fact, Edwin married Churl's daughter. But Churl didn't yet have the poke Edwin was looking for, and so he headed off to the Bretwold of the big man, Raidwold, and his court at Rendlesham to give him some help. By this stage, by the way, 6.15, Puba, Penda's father, has died. Ethelfrith, King of Northumbria, known by the British as Ethelfrith the Artful, sent messages south to Raidwold offering money to hand over the fugitive Edwin. But Raidwold refused. It didn't look good for a Bretwalder to hand over his guests for a few reddies. And meanwhile, Ethelfrith was proving to be a pretty successful king, despite his failure to tidy up Edwin. On his northwestern borders lay the Celtic kingdom of Dalriata, a kingdom incorporating parts of Scotland and Northern Ireland. The defeat of the Dalratans at the hands of Ethelfrith secured Northumbria's boundaries for several generations. On his western borders lay the Welsh kingdom of Powys, and somewhere around 615 Ethelfrith faced the king of Powys and his army. He also faced a bevy of monks on the British side, all praying to God for the right side, the Welsh side, to win. Ethelfrith's attitude was practical, and again, tidy. According to Bede, he said, If they're praying to their gods against us, even if they do not bear arms, they are fighting against us, assailing us as they do with prayers for our defeat. 1,200 monks and the army of Powys were slaughtered as a result. 1,200 sounds like an awful lot of monks for the time, but hey. Anyway, it has to be said that by this time, Ethelfrith was beginning to fancy his chances in the Imperium department. So what if Raidwald was officially Brettwalder? He, Ethelfrith, was looking like a pretty hot candidate in the Brettwalder department himself. And anyway, Brettwalder wasn't an official title anyway. And so Ethelfrith's offers of bribes to Raidwald to hand back Edwin turned to threats. Hand him over, Raidwald, or feel the edge of my axe. Fair enough, thought Raidwald. Cheapest chips. Not keen on this Edwin bloke anyway. And meanwhile Edwin was feeling understandably nervous, but then a Christian priest, one of Augustine's mission called Paulinus of York, soothed Edwin's nerves. He promised that God would provide and that he, Edwin, would have a glorious future. As it happens, Paulinus was to be right. It was apparently Raidwald's pagan wife who convinced him that Brettwalders don't stay Brettwalders for very long if they hand over their guests for a bit of cash and that it was time to man up. The result was that Raidwald and Edwin took the fight to Ethelfrith instead. And by the end of the Battle of River Idol, Ethelfrith was dead. Edwin was king of Northumbria and Ethelfrith's seven sons took their turn in exile at the courts of Dalriata and the Picts. Two of those sons, as it happens, Oswald and Oswu, will return to haunt Edwin, but for the moment they learnt Gaelic and fought for their Irish protectors. They also came into contact, of course, with the Irish Christian priests and their religion, which would have an impact. So, Edwin was now king of Northumbria instead of Ethelfrith. Edwin was an effective king of Northumbria, he took over the surviving British kingdom of Elmet, south-east of York. He conquered the islands of Man and Anglesey, so obviously had a working navy. In fact, the speed of conquest meant that the evidence of actual settlement of the northwest by Angles is pretty thin. Much of these new conquests simply brought Britons into the new kingdom. 
What, I hear you ask, has all of this got to do with Pender? What comes down to us loud and clear about Pender is that he was a fighter, a warrior, that he accepted that the role of the Anglo-Saxon leader was to fill his followers' boots with treasure. Bede, who wrote most of what we know about Pender, was a Northumbrian through and through, and thought of the Northumbrians as the light of the Christian world. Pender was a pagan and gave Northumbria 30 years of grief. So, when Bede described Pender as a most vigorous man from the royal stock of Mercians, who from that time ruled his people for 22 years with varying success, you actually take it as a compliment. But growing up as a young man in the Mercian courts, the continued success of the Northumbrian kingdom under two effective rulers, Ethelfrith and Edwin, would not have been welcome to Pender. No one likes a gorilla on their doorstep. Pender's later history showed that his attitude to Christianity was equivocal. It was not for him, and he remained a determined pagan to the end of his life. But he allied himself with Christian kings, and he allowed his sons and his people to make their own choices. So although Edwin's attitude to Christianity was probably less important to Pender than the alarming growth of Northumbrian territory, it's quite probable that if Edwin converted, it wouldn't have been welcomed by Pender. In fact, after 617, Edwin showed no sign of repaying the confidence Paulinus of York had showed him at Raidwell's court. As we've seen from a flying start, the attempt to convert the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity had faltered thrown out by the East Saxons, half-heartedly adopted at best by Raidwald. When Raidwald died in 624, Edwin's success in Northumbria made him the natural successor as Bretwalder, and that's exactly what Edwin was determined would happen. As far as Mercian King Churl was concerned, at least Edwin had been married to his daughter and had two sons by her, though true enough, she had died. The West Saxons were hardly a threat to Edwin at this time, and even after Raidwald's death, Edwin's relationship with East Anglia remained strong. So the key for Edwin to having him accepted as Bretwalder was prosperous Kent. The key for the fledgling Christian church in England was this powerful Northumbrian king and getting him on side. Edwin sealed his leadership of all the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms not by war, but by marriage, agreeing to marry a Kentish princess, Ethelbur. But part of the deal was that Ethelbur would bring her Christian religion with her and her chaplain, Paulinus of York, as it happens, and Edwin had to promise that he'd also consider conversion. Edwin still kicked and screamed and struggled, but as it turns out, 626 was a critical year for Edwin and for Christianity. Edwin's new status worried more than Pender in Mercia. It had also put the wind up the West Saxons. The king of the West Saxons was a man called Quichelm, who to date had been relatively successful in extending Wessex to the west in the face of the British kingdoms. Quichelm's worldview did not include kowtowing to some Northumbrian parvenu. His worldview, like any self-respecting Saxon war leader, was to extend his power and reputation and that of his followers and poo on anyone's head on whom he could poo. As it happens, Quichelm had also set his sights on the petty kingdom of the Huissa in Gloucestershire, probably already a Mercian client, but Quichelm saw no reason at all to accept the Thames as his northern boundary. 
Anyway, Quitchelm wanted to make his defiance of Edwin of Northumbria quite clear. But getting at him in Northumbria, which shared no border with the West Saxons in the south, was something of a challenge. So, rather than attempt a good, honest, open fight, Quitchelm went sneaky and went for assassination. Quitchelm's man was Aoma, not to be confused with the Aoma nephew of Theoden, king of the Rohirrim in The Lord of the Rings. And his man was sent to Edwin's court. When Aoma arrived, he announced that he brought a message from Quitchelm, king of the Gwissa, for Edwin's ears, and was readily admitted. But as soon as he was close enough, Aoma leapt at Edwin, sacks raised to strike. Bede takes up the story for us. Leela, her most devoted thane, saw this. But not having a shield in his hand to protect the king from death, he quickly interposed his own body to receive the blow. His enemy thrust the weapon with such force that he killed the thane and wounded the king as well through his dead body. I assume that Aoma the assassin didn't make it out of there. And if you want another example of the code of the warrior and devotion to the Lord, there it is for you in Leela's sacrifice. Edwin took his revenge, invading Wessex, for which purpose it's likely he'd have to have come to the court at Mercia to ask permission to pass through their lands. But this close escape gave Edwin further pause for thought. And we have a substantial section in Bede's history where Edwin debates with his court and pagan priest about what's best to do. It has to be said that his pagan priest really should have been fired by his gods or followers since he put up a thoroughly rubbish defence. In fact, rather agreed that Christianity looked like a better bet. I find it very difficult to believe our good Christian Bede wasn't guilty of just a smidgen of bias. But having said that, I confess that I think I am also guilty of having an edge of cynicism when it comes to the Christian conversion, which is slightly unfair. And to keep the debate balanced, Bede records one of Edwin's court making a good point. This is a famous passage in the ecclesiastical history. This is how the present life on earth, king, appears to me in comparison with that time which is unknown to us. You are sitting feasting with your aldermen and thanes in the winter time. The fire is burning on the hearth in the middle of the hall, and all inside is warm, while outside the wintry storms of rain and snow are raging. And a sparrow flies swiftly through the hall. It enters in at one door and quickly flies out through the other. For the few moments it is inside, the storm and wintry tempest cannot touch it. But after the briefest moment of calm, it flits from your sight, out of the wintry storm and into it again. So this life of man appears, but for a moment. What follows, or indeed what went before, we know not at all. If the new doctrine brings us more certain information, it seems right that we should accept it. It's a rather lovely passage, is it not? There's the description of the king's hall, which gives us an insight into daily life at court. But the main point, that maybe Christianity brought a philosophy, a certainty or hope about life that was absent before, couldn't be ignored. There are lots of reasons why Christianity eventually succeeded, but maybe this was one of them. 
Anyway, Edwin also recognised all those good reasons that Ethelbert of Kent had recognised. The opportunity to stand out, to have a priesthood you controlled, the opportunity to communicate with your people. It all worked for Edwin, and in 627 he was baptised, and this was a critical success for the future of Christianity in England. In Mercia, we do not know what the court there thought of all of this, but it cannot have been comfortable to see the growing power and authority of Northumbria on their doorstep. We do not know at what point Penda actually becomes king of Mercia. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says 626. Bede says 633. Nenius, the least reliable of these, says 642. I'm going 626, and we'll end the episode with our first mentions of Penda in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. In 626, we have this. And this year, Penda succeeded to the kingdom and reigned 30 years. And he was 50 years old when he succeeded to the kingdom. Penda was the son of Puba, Puba son of Creoda, Creoda of Cunwald, Cunwald of Cneba, Cneba of Ikel, Ikel of Aoma, Aoma of Angaltheau, Angaltheau of Offa, Offa of Weamund, Weamund of Witchleg, Witchleg of Woden. That's good, isn't it? I'm seriously thinking of adopting the same approach when I introduce myself. Hi, I am David, son of John, son of Emil, and so on until I get to Woden. Or actually, I think I'd go for Thor. It's those goats. Seriously, though, Penda wouldn't have been 50 when he succeeded to the kingdom. Much more likely he was 50 when he died, and so that's what I've gone for too. And then in 628, we see Penda in action at last. This year, Coongills and Quichelm fought against Penda at Sirencester, and then made a treaty. Coongills, incidentally, was Quichelm the would-be murderer's son. They appeared to rule together. Now this is an entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, a document produced by the West Saxons after the reign of Alfred, and which cannot under any circumstances be accused of a lack of bias towards the West Saxons, cannot be accused of failing to take every opportunity to big up the West Saxons. So the fact that a victory for Wessex is not recorded here is essentially the same as saying, Penda walked all over our boys and danced on their graves. So Penda was in control. Not for him, his predecessor's acceptance of a secondary role for Mercia. The likely cause of this particular spat was that the West Saxons were attempting to bring their control north of the River Thames, at beyond its source in the west. Here they would have met the Huissa, that small kingdom in Gloucester and Worcestershire. It's likely that the Huissa had appealed for help, or simply that Pender decided to reinforce his position with them. Either way... After this, everyone was now clear that the kings of the Hawissa were client kings of Mercia, not client kings of Wessex. So, grand. That seems like a good place to stop, with Penda's emergence as king. Hope you've had a lovely time with all the names. I know I've enjoyed it. Next time, we'll hear about how Penda the Pagan's career develops and ends, and the changing landscape in which he lived in 7th century England. So, in the meantime... Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks for your messages on the website, Facebook, iTunes, that sort of thing. Good luck, everyone, and have a great time.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.